Welcome back, loyal listening audience. Thank you once again for downloading our podcast. I sure appreciate your attention and your continued support. Thank you to everybody who writes in at info at nogginnotes.com and info at zephyrwellness.org with um, suggestions and comments and feedback. We appreciate your ratings and reviews on iTunes and wherever else you listen. Those help drive listenership so that we can get this information into the hands of the many so that you can all live healthier, happier lives. I also want to thank very specifically my wife, Heather, who does not show her face in public (laughs) very often because she likes to work behind the scenes and let me do what I do. Uh, Without her, I wouldn't be able to do this. So thank you to her for all her continued support and her tireless and diligent work behind the scenes at home. And also of uh, equal importance on the business end, my co-owner at Zephyr Wellness, Lindsay Bell, who works tirelessly and diligently behind the scenes to make sure that things stay running and our employees get paid and all sorts of good stuff that uh, doesn't present itself to the light of day. Um, And then finally, our operations director, Lauren Penksa at Zephyr Wellness, who works tirelessly and diligently behind the scenes to make sure things get done uh, without my my crew of ladies in my life, I could not uh, be the, the public face of Zephyr Wellness and Noggin Notes the, the way that I am. And um, certainly the other half of my team at Noggin Notes, Safisa Ropinga, who uh, you heard last summer on our 100th anniversary podcast, not 100th, I guess, year anniversary, but our 100th episode. Um, without the team, uh, none of this happens. So even though I get a lot of praise and adulation, um, it's not really deserved. I'm just the dude talking into the mic. Everybody else gets the work done behind me. So thanks to those folks. The podcast is brought to you again by Audible. Uh, By now, you probably know that Audible offers a completely unparalleled selection of audio content for download. If you don't know that and you want to find out, go to audibletrial.com slash notes and start your free 30-day trial. And with that 30-day trial, you will get a free download of an audiobook of your choosing. And even if you decide to cancel, you keep the audiobook. AudibleTrial.com slash Noggin Notes. Help us out. Help you out. Feed your brain. It is hungry. I promise you. Today's interview is with my good friend and longtime mentor, Christian Conti. He, uh, he has a PhD in counselor education and uh, supervision, and so we can call him Dr. Christian Conti, and that is his website, drchristianconti.com. You can find out more there, and you'll definitely find out more about what he's doing in this interview. So I'm not going to talk anymore. I'm going to just let him do the explaining. I think you'll really enjoy it, but before we do that, I want to say one last thing. If you think you're struggling or you know somebody else who might be struggling, please direct them to the following website wtta.org slash love but you can also just go to wtta.org or walkthetalkamerica.org and immediately what will pop up is an opportunity to take a free and confidential mental health screening there are 13 different screenings on there two of which are in spanish and check yourself out and if you need help go to one of the following resources psychologytoday.com aamft.com and the therapist locator or if you're overseas in the UK, sane.org.uk or mind.org.uk, and you can find resources there. Without further delay, here's my interview with my good friend, Christian Conti. Well, today we're talking with uh, my good friend and uh, mentor, Christian Conti. Hello. What's up, Jake? I'm so glad to be back on your podcast. Yeah, man, it's been a while. Um, we've had a lot of life develop in, in between podcasts, and uh, even though you and I stay in touch, it's not as frequent as we'd like. Um, and part of this is going to be spent ex- you know, interviewing you and asking you what you've been up to <laughs> lately, uh, which is a lot. But also, um, I want to I give a backdrop for people who may not be familiar with you anyway, and, and that's to say that you are a clinical psychologist. No, you're an educational psychologist. Um, by trade, I guess, and um, you're a you're a counselor educator, and you spent some time in Reno, where I live, and that's how we met. We met playing softball, and we became friends. And then I took a couple experimental exploratory classes from you during a different graduate program. And during those classes, I fell in love with counseling and came back for another 
graduate program in counseling. And then you uh, shepherded me through uh, school and into my career. And then you moved back to Pennsylvania where you, where you, from where you hail. And um, you've got a wonderful family and you're back by your parents and your wife's parents and you're lighting the world on fire chiefly doing stuff in the Pennsylvania prison system. So I want to talk about that and I want to talk about yield theory and I want to talk about your new book. But I'll let you uh, fill in where I may have missed some things. Go ahead. No, I love that. I actually love that intro because I'm really excited. My parents are coming over for the Super Bowl this weekend. And when we lived 3,000 miles away, that was much more difficult to make happen. Um, so just the little things like that make a, a world of difference. But I'm super excited for today to talk to you about you know the, my book that I have been writing really in my mind for 20 one years, but I've been writing literally for two years. Um, Walking Through Anger came out, uh, released by Sounds True Publishing, and we've had a chance to do a, a book tour. We're still doing different things. We do a lot of podcasts around it, but it's really exciting because this is the book that kind of explains yield theory. So I'm, I'm stoked to be able to talk to you about it. So if we don't uh, spoil the entire book, why don't you explain what yield theory is to the audience? So yield theory is this. Think about Anytime you want to connect with someone, right away, there can be people who are defensive and want to shut down. What yield theory does is it's a, it's a way to connect with people, get around their fight or flight response, and speak in ways that can actually be heard. So what I'm most proud of about what yield theory does is, look, we all encounter people, and we at times are defensive. We're like, listen, don't go there, don't. And, and connecting with people, it's one thing to stand on a soapbox and say whatever you want to say and say, oh, I told them. But it's another thing entirely to speak in ways in which you can actually be heard. And so yield theory is about meeting people where they are, spreading conscious education through the use of compassion and creativity. And it's evidence-based. You know, you know and well, part of me feels like, that's silly. And then there's another part of me that says, yeah, we recognize that some of this stuff is effective. So you and I, we can talk about all that kind of stuff, but that's yield theory in a nutshell. It's a really powerful technique that when I started adopting it, you had, um, I don't know, we met in 2007 and you came up with yield theory some, I don't know, eight or nine, 10 years before. And you were starting to wrap your arms around teaching it to other people, I think. And one of the major things that you said there, and you repeat this in, in many of your uh, own podcasts and, and YouTube videos, is meeting people where they are. And I I grew up becoming pretty judgmental of others. And I think that was probably a, a defense mechanism from being bullied my whole childhood. But I was super judgmental. And I put people in boxes and I labeled them and I stuck them away in corners so that I myself was comfortable with where they were and where I put them. So meeting people where they are meant like having to look through all those labels and see people for the authentic human being on the inside, the, you know, the deep soul of a human. And that was super, super, super hard. So it sounds like really simple in concept you're like oh meet people where they are yeah who doesn't want to do that but really it's like the actual practice of it of ignoring people's outward behavior is really frustrating <laughs> for, for most of us but what's what i what i like and why to me um more than than most people why that resonates with me so much is you actually do the work every day you're you're constantly out in the field impacting the world so you recognize something that i think a lot of people can understand intellectually but struggle with actually implementing. And that is when I say meeting people where they are, we might be able to say, oh, yeah, that makes sense. But do you actually do it? Do you in the midst of a conversation when you see that a person is shutting down, stop, change directions from where you were thinking was the most effective direction and you change to meet them where they actually are? And this is something that occurs not – uh, uh, every few weeks or every month, it's every conversation. Every time you interact with someone, you want to know where are they in that conversation. So I had, a, I had this experience one time where um, I was in private practice and a mother brought her child into therapy and he was a six-year-old. So my rule has always been if you're going to bring a child in who's under 10, I'm only going to spend half the time with your child. I'm going to spend the other half the time with you. If you're cool with it, I'll see you. If you're not, there's other there are other therapists that might be right for you. So this woman, I talked to the little boy for a little bit, and I was talking to the mother, and she said, "I said, have you 
checked whether or not he's hungry. Like my, my man, it's like the middle of the day. He seems agitated. She said, oh, I checked that before. I said, before <laughs> you have to check whether he's hungry several, every time, every day, all day. Like there are many times throughout the day, your little boy is going to be hungry. Um, it can't be something you checked once. And the same is true when it comes to checking where people are in regard to changing. You might have a friend, and let me talk to our listeners out there who might have a friend who's in a not a good relationship, and they're thinking, well, I want to get out of this relationship, and maybe you're giving them good advice, and then you're confused when they come back the next time you talk and say, no, we're back together, everything's fine. Well, it's because you don't understand all the things that changed in their mind in that time, and so we don't want to keep talking to them where we think they should be. We want to talk to them where they actually are. Yeah, that's a huge point, and it's something I try to remind people of when I teach this concept is that we don't want to meet them where they should be or where we think they should be, and we definitely don't want to meet them where they used to be in our heads because a lot has transpired since then. Um, we want to meet them where they are, and that takes work because you're constantly having to check in, like you said. And I, I think that what we do is we may have encounters with people you know, a, a time or multiple times, and then some time will pass. And I'm thinking back to like you know the people who picked on me in uh, elementary and middle school. Um, for a lot of us, I think we, we freeze people in time where those events happened and then we don't let them out of that state. And so later in adulthood, we may meet them and we're, we're a little, little apprehensive maybe to, to re-engage, re but it turns out, you know, they've changed, they found religion, they got married, had kids, you know, whatever it was. And we've still pictured them as the, you know, the 10 year old who has thrown sand in our, <laughs> in our hair on the playground or whatever. Oh, that's just, I honestly think that's brilliant. That's one of those things that, like, you you say it in such a, a, a regular way for everybody to relate to. But I think that's genuinely brilliant. Like, really think about that. We freeze people in time. And so that's true of all of us, of every interaction we have. On one end, it's pretty normal human behavior. Hey, I met this person. I didn't get along with them. Well, they're vastly different now. Um, I appreciate you didn't get along with them when they were seven, but 20 years later, they're 27, so we're hoping they're different people by then. Um, and then the other thing is this. We recognize all the changes we make, but when someone that we interact with someone else, we keep that. Like I love the way you just said that. It's beautiful. We froze them in that time. So now here we are. Oh, I've changed. I've grown. But you, you're probably still the same person who right. you were when you were seven or 13 or 18. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, unfortunately we just had, uh, the death of a really powerful person in uh celebrity world, uh, Kobe Bryant, who is a very good basketball player, uh, world renowned. And he did a lot for the community and he had a, uh, a misstep once in his, in his history. I'm not going to bring it up cause it's not worth it. Um, but I saw some social media posts that, uh, defined him by that. And it happened like 17 years ago. And, and I think that's really unfortunate because I myself, I don't want to be defined by my mistakes. I want to be defined by right. the, the, the growth I can't, you know, that came from the mistakes. And when we see people being judgmental online specifically, because that's where it tends to happen most because we all hide behind our keyboards. Um, we want to we be as compassionate for the people who are throwing the, the barbs and shooting the arrows as we are for ourselves when we make mistakes, because chances are really good. The only reason they're doing that is because they themselves are not meeting themselves where they are. They're not giving personal forgiveness. Right. And, and ev right, right. evolving. No, you're, you're right. And, and it's interesting because you, I like the way you phrase it. I want to be defined by my growth, by my mistakes, because I believe that many people, I think that that's a, that's a very healthy and normal thing that I think a lot of us want but I believe that it's really – this is probably one of those things that I wish we could like – if I could reach into people's hearts who are listening and have you really feel this. Think about this. You want to be defined by your growth. Hey, look, I've changed. I'm not that person. But then when you look at someone else, it's nope, they're this person. They're this isolated incident, and it's, it's easy to do that. To make them, oh, they're this, because then we understand our world. And from a biological evolutionary standpoint, it makes sense. Look, if we're if it's 10,000 years ago, we're walking through the uh, a field and we see a bunch of rocks and we say, no, last time we came upon rocks, there was snake, snake bit, person, person died. So now we associate that. That's That makes sense. I understand why we do that. But one of the things that we've learned through the years is not all snakes are poisonous. So not all snakes would actually do that. But and not all rocks have snakes under them. That. 
Right, right, exactly, exactly. So it's learning to discern that difference. And of course, it makes sense why if you're a little kid and you think in terms of black and white, you go, oh, no, rock bad, that's it. Wait a minute. But as you get older, you go, no, 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 buddy, that some rocks are, there could be snakes under, but other rocks have no snakes under them. And some snakes are poisonous and some snakes aren't. In other words, we learn to see some of those finer points that we're not able to see as children unfortunately when it comes to anger and i've spent a career dealing with people who are angry um we tend to define people by those one or two characteristics and then just keep them in that even though they're constantly growing changing and evolving we want to pigeonhole them to that that's a really good segue um because i wanted to shift a little bit from what yield theory is and the book again is uh walking through anger um, toward how you're applying that in prison? Because there's a lot of people in prison who are angry. So many different reasons, too. So I was talking to a, a doctor the other day who said, um, oh, everybody's angry in prison. And I said, I'm interested. Tell me about what their anger is. And so I was like listening to people who've never been into prison. Tell me what prison is. <laughs> so he yeah. gave me his idea. And I said, that's a great idea. Unfortunately, that's not reality. People in prison are angry for lots of different reasons. Some of those reasons are toward others. Um, a very small percentage are is a anger toward people because they say they're completely innocent and maybe they are but that's so far and few between um and for instance a lot of times people are innocent of the crime they were convicted of but guilty of a different crime that maybe even worse but they didn't get convicted of so hmm. the system's not as as silly as a, a television or, or news might want to make it out to be um i think that the to recognize and understand that prison is comp it's complicated there are people who are angry in prison but they're different types again one might be sudden rage where people are ready to snap in a second there's another type of anger that's called uh, abandonment rage where people are worried they're going to be left hmm. you know shame-based rage there are different types of actually that'd be cool to talk about those different types of rage because they actually apply to all of us on some scale yeah, why don't you break that down? Because I'm I'm really interested. And if you could do me a favor, um, keep your uh, uh, mouth to the microphone there. It sounded like you were on your chin there for a second. No, no, no. Yeah, definitely. So there are different types of rage that we experience. Different types of anger. Ron Potter Efron, who is honest to goodness, he was. I was kind of nervous to meet him. This guy's a giant in the field. He's written several books. I, I, I'd like to believe I've read most of whatever he's written. Anything that's in print that can be accessed, I'd say I bought and read. So when I finally met him a few years ago, and I'm so thankful, like I can't even, I'm so, it's kind of surreal for me to say that he actually not only endorsed my book, but wrote a foreword for my book um, because he's, he's incredible. Again, his name's uh, Ron Potter Efron, but he developed what's called different types of rage. And what he taught was that, some aspect this makes so much logical sense so picture this the one type of rage is what is called abandonment rage and abandonment rage occurs when we get extraordinarily angry because we believe that we're going to be abandoned now from a deep you know evolutionary perspective again think you know 10 20,000 years ago we're moving in groups and if someone was kicked out of the group, well, they don't have a good chance to survive. So being abandoned by a group might be hardwired into our DNA to make us have a strong reaction. So now, um, uh, real quick, okay. so, so when I teach emotions, I teach the, the Izzard, Carol Izzard, 10 emotions, discrete emotions in the brain. And I actually talk about the evolutionary purpose of emotion and keeping us together in tribes and so forth. What you're describing sounds more like fear to me, like we're afraid to be left behind, but you're describing it as, as anger. Help it, me understand it is. that. So, and again, when we talk about evolutionary psychology, we are talking about conjecture. And if someone's out there going, what's conjecture? It's a fancy word that means guesswork. In other words, I'm taking information, and I do a lot of this, and I, I, I actually purport a lot of evolutionary psych psychological ideas, but I understand that these are just theories. These are just ideas that come to me, and I say, you know what? It sounds like this might make sense. But one of them is this concept that if we are going to be abandoned, we have to look at 
oh my goodness, what if we were abandoned and it was a time when we couldn't just fend for ourselves? That would be really scary. And I think, I honestly believe, so here's, I I can say I have a a case I I saw one time. It was one of the most pronounced uh, examples of this. But there was a guy who was um, not, not, he he wasn't like, he even described himself as, I'm not a manly man and all that kind of stuff. But he had really severely bitten, uh, beaten his wife. And so when he didn't understand why he did what he did, you know, and, and when he first started to talk, I was like, oh, okay, this sounds like typical uh, denial and things like that. Well, then I did uh, a group on the different types of rage. And when I do these types of rage, I actually pass out. So I do a worksheet, a workbook. Um, my workbook is the anger management workbook, but I do uh, types of rage and I passed it out. And so he filled this out Well, he's back there and you could tell he's holding back tears. And when it came time to discuss the group, I said to him, what's going on? And he said, when I saw this right now, he said, this just hit me in a different way. He said, so let's get this picture. So I'm sitting in a group of people who are convicted of violent crimes this man in particular definitely admitted to beating his wife, said he had a history of not being violent, never really had violence in his life. Well, when he read about abandonment rage, here's what kicked in. When he was a very small child, um, his parents would travel all over the world, and they would leave him with a nanny. And they always told him, when you reach a certain age, we'll take you with us. Well, he reached that age, and his parents came in, sat down. He said, I'll never forget it. My mom said, uh, came in, I had my suitcase packed, and he said, no, I, we're not taking you with us this year. We'll do it next year. Wow. And he was like, you told me my whole life it was this year. So anyway, flash forward 30 or 40-some years later, man was in his mid-50s. His wife said, I'm leaving you, and he snapped. Wow. And he snapped. And the visceral, and this is the part that's hard to express over a podcast, the visceral reaction from him in the way he was crying, talking about it, and had this cathartic mode. I mean, like everybody in the room, we all felt that catharsis, like, holy crap, like this, you're right, This that's powerful. Your parents left you, and now your wife says, I'm leaving you. And again, Jake, and you know this about me, and, I, and you know you and I do this kind of work. I would never condone violence. I'm not excusing it. I'm not saying what he did was okay in any way, shape, or form. He definitely should have served the time he served. What I'm saying is my job has never been to excuse behavior. It's to explain it. And that's all I'm doing is explaining, saying, yeah, it makes sense why he did what he did. And imagine if the world was armed with this information. And, for instance, in class, he would have learned, don't do this. Well, he would have found a different way to deal with it, I think. Yeah, we would think that, you know, through teaching, hopefully now, because social emotional education, something called SEL, you may have heard that in curriculum around the countries and schools, is now becoming a thing. And we're teaching our children emotional functioning. We're teaching them how to uh, express and label and claim and then tolerate their emotions so that we don't have explosions of violence. And so it's possible that, you know, had he been aware of this and realized what was going on within him physiologically, he could have just wrote it through, returned to frontal lobe function, you know, thought it through, sat down with his wife and discussed it rather than exploding on her, if if the theory is correct, right? Yes. Yes, that's it. So what are some other kinds of rage? So some other types of rage. So then we have, so, I mean, but you're, but I I don't want to like, I kind of wish we could highlight this. Yeah, yeah, stay there as long as you want. Because if this was a movie, like we would kind of put it in, like what you just said was pretty profound he would have had a conversation. He would have said, the moment you said that, that just triggered something in me. I don't know what, but it triggered something in me. And then they would have started to discuss it. And had they gone back to it, because just to give our listeners a time frame, I taught the types of rage in a 15-minute lecture. I then passed out a worksheet and has the different types of rage. And each worksheet only asks like two questions per type of rage. So we're not talking about a long period of time. So you're talking about within 30 minutes, a man who not only did what he did, but was able to recognize that all of that happened within 30 minutes. 
And again, I know you see this all the time. I do like this is the type of therapy we do. This is why we're passionate. But I really want our listeners to hear that because imagine within thirty minutes how different if he would have gone to his wife and said something different. Like I'm triggered. I'm I'm fur- I'm pissed. I'm furious right now. Let's explore. Let me figure this out. And just by doing that, or even saying what you said to me right a few minutes ago, something along the lines of "Let's stick with this" or "Let's go," let's let's hold this. I mean, just doing something like that can radically change the way the outcome happens. So, I want to, you know, if we can hover here for a second, because I want to ask you a really, really challenging question. It may it may invoke a little bit of um, politics and policy because. Um, we're talking about prison reform broadly as a country. We're trying to figure out what to do to get people rehabilitated and out on the streets. And largely the, the narrative consumes uh, a lot of like drug offenders and, um, and it doesn't make any sense as a, as a progressing industrialized, you know, forward thinking nation to throw people in cages for eating or smoking the wrong plant. I mean, it just, it just doesn't make any sense. Right. So the question is, and and we're talking violence and it's a different animal and I understand that, but at some point, someone has to do some sort of evaluation on these people who have been convicted of these crimes and determine that they're quote unquote fit to reenter society with a reasonable prediction that they're not going to reoffend. And so far, the the system has been uh, serve some arbitrary time, and then you're somehow magically returned, and we presume you to be rehabilitated, but there's no rehabilitation taking place. What you're talking about is rehabilitation, but my question is, how do we know that that guy in that moment isn't just completely better? He's like, oh, I have my insight. I'll never happen again, because we've seen that in our work, for sure, but how do we make that promise to society? I guess? Right. I'm well, so I'm working. I'm actually working uh, with the Pennsylvania um, parole system. It's one of the largest parole systems in our country, um, and I am working with them on developing ways to assess this. Um, because you're right, like in that cathartic moment, like that particular guy. Not only did he make that change that day. Um, I'm telling you about an experience from about nine years ago. So I know that that change stuck because I actually heard from him recently things have been going well things have always been going well for him after that um, so that particular it's anecdotal and I would never purport because I teach you know for years as a professor I used to say to students question everything even question me and if I try to you know give you a, a end all statement make sure you're mindful that that's not realistic so sure I have a, a very true anecdotal information but I would never want to say oh because I have this anecdotal information it's now fact for everyone. And, 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 and that is something that I think is important for us to teach. Yeah. And, and I think, we, you know, you mentioned evidence-based practice earlier and we, you know, you and I can chuckle about that because I think it's been overly broadly applied, but um, it, it is important that we have some semblance of uh, coherence and we're not just cherry picking data to make policies out of it. That's dangerous. Um, right, right. So what are you working with the, the parole and probation department on? So what I do is, um, you know, spent 21 years now of my career. I specialize in people who've been convicted of violent crimes. I have a pretty good uh, gut intuition when I meet people and when I assess people what might be happening. But I want to be able to bottle that and have people understand it. So um, what I'm doing, and this is pretty revolutionary. I think it's revolutionary in regard to the research that's being done and has been done historically. Um, so I feel grateful, and of course, I'm going to share on your podcast first. Heck yeah! Um, and, but this is this is what I'm doing. Um, we assess people's violence historically on the violent event that brought them into prison. Now, this might what I'm about to say. It's going to sound so logical. You're going to say, "Well, of course," but I know you appreciate this. But I would love for your listeners to appreciate. No one has known this yet. Um, so we assess people based off the violence that occurred, based on their ability to articulate in a convincing way that they show remorse for that situation. Right. What I'm proposing is that we don't even bring up the event that the person brought the person in, but the event that happened last week, the event that happened two days ago. Hmm. Um, because when we can f- assess a person's current ability to react to unpleasant, 
um, or unpleasant stimuli or impulsive motivations. And when we can assess how they're doing with that, we have a better assessment of how they're going to fare when they get out of prison. Because if I have somebody who, you know, we we can have somebody we assess, and maybe they did something um, that was um, not impulsive but premeditated to get into prison, and then we assess them on their impulsivity. Well, maybe throughout prison they've learned to be much more impulsive. And right. You know what I mean? So now what are we assessing? Are we assessing something that has no correlation to what could possibly happen, or are we assessing reality? Yeah, and, it, and again, it goes back to that frozen moment in time, right? We don't want to pigeonhole people into something they did once for any reason. Um, becoming a champion once is to be celebrated, but if you fail to perform for the next seven years, you, you're probably going to find yourself out of that sport, right? So we want to, it's like, what have you done for me lately? Sounds like an epithet, but it it's how we operate. Right. That's a great. That's a great image. Actually, I really like that. If you were a champion once, and then you haven't won for seven years, you're not still a champion. You won one time. You were a champion, um, but it's and then I kind of see that all the way around. Like we're not one event in our life. We're right. evolving. So I am mindful that I started to tell you about different types of rage. Yeah. Um, and I will continue with that. I'll tell you some different types because they're pretty fascinating to learn about. Yeah. Well, um, yeah. But the, Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, yeah, I want to hear them, but finish. Okay, so let me give so let me give another. So another one might be something called impotent rage, like you can't do anything about the situation, and so you really lash out. Um, an example I give in one of my books, I talk about. I had an incident where um, this guy got he was doing weekends in county jail because he had to serve his time, but he was able to have work release. So he could be gone during the week, but then on the weekends he had to come back and report. Well, he thought he was going to be done, and he found out he had two more weekends. He was so mad, he turned around and punched the wall. So now he had a broken wrist. Wow, yeah. And he got uh, more time for the behavior. And uh, the whole situation, when we stopped and looked at it, I said, this is an example of it. You think, I can't do anything. There's nothing I can do to tell these uh, authority figures that I cannot do this time or don't want to do this time. And so what do you do? You rage on it. So impotent rage is you feel like you can't do anything, so you snap. That's one of them. And, and real quick to correct for the audience, if you're thinking impotent sexually, that doesn't mean uh, what, we're, what we mean it means. Uh, impotent, uh, the word potent is uh, rooted in the word uh, for power. Uh, and so it means not powered, right? You're impotent. You're, you're not powered to do anything. So in this case, you know, the power is taken away from him. It's like, sorry, two more weekends. And uh, he couldn't tolerate that disappointment or that distress. And so he, he lashed out. That's it. That's it. Exactly. That's it. Exactly. <laughs> and then there's something called seething rage. And I can promise you that you, me, and every listener out there has experienced seething rage. So let's imagine a situation where you got disagreement at the beginning of the day, and then you go to work, and you have your whole day. And by the end of the day, you come back and see that person who you hadn't seen all day, and somehow you're angrier at the end of the day yeah. than you were at the beginning of the day because you've created this seething argument in your mind, and you've developed this whole like fight. You're going through this and that and replaying everything. So when you spy, and you just go on the spiral downward, that's seething rage. Mm-hmm. You, no new information happens, but somehow you're angrier. Yeah, because you um, fixate on and it. Listen, listen to why this is so profound. Um, and again, I teach this. I mean, this is in my one video, Getting Control of Yourself, that's used in prisons throughout the world. Um, that That's a like if, if there are listeners out there who are therapists, Getting Control of Yourself, it's offered through psychotherapy.net. But that's a, that's a video I'd love for people to see. But I talk about these in there. And this, uh, this seething rage, I tell the story. I had a guy. This is the reason why, in fact, when people say, ooh. I know what to do when you're angry. Count to 10 and walk away. No, here's why you don't. <laughs> because I had a client one time, uh, and I love real stories. just so much better than anything you can make up. But this client, he came in and he said, Doc, he said, man, I wish someone would have taught me seething rage back in the day. He said, one time, they used to always tell me, go for a walk. He said, so one time me and my girl got in a fight, and I walked outside, and I went for a walk for a while. I was gone for about an hour. When I walked back in, I picked up my television. I threw it out my front window. <laughs> I 
said that's seething rage. Yes, that's what is. it is. Yeah. You go for a walk. You get your. It's, it's essentially putting gasoline on a fire. Like that's why it's pop psychology to say things like, "Oh, hey, take a deep breath. Hey, just step away and count to ten. No, no. Because if you're talking to somebody who has seething rage, you're you're actually setting up violence by saying that. How do you know the difference if you're a random person who listens to pop psychology or just a random clinician who thinks that's a good idea? How can how can we tell the difference and not give them that suggestion? Well, I think teaching it is is ethical. So I do, as you know, you and I, we do YouTube channels. So I do a YouTube channel. It's, it's good to Dr. Christian Conti on YouTube. But I do a lot of videos around, like I, I try to make people aware of some of these concepts um, and we have to teach it right away. We have to help people understand there are more ways. And I'll give you an example. I'm doing this book tour and I do um, uh, different uh, interviews and things like that. And I was going on to one of the major networks and the producer said, well, can you just give us some of your quick tips for anger? And, I'm, and mine are less quick tips and more like let's learn to be non-attached. Let's learn to assess you know, recognize you play a role in relationships. And she said, no, well, can you just tell us, like, you know, just count to 10 and walk away. And I was like, no, absolutely not. I cannot say that because that's not reality. And she was like, oh, well, just like, just, you know, just tell people to just take a deep breath or something. Just tell them that's all we're looking for. And I said, no, I can't come on and tell you that what I know and what I've experienced, I'm one of three, four people in the world who has a level five anger management certification. I've studied this stuff intently for 20 years. I'm not going to come on the air and tell people that. So it was interesting because that particular interview didn't work out and that's fine. But my, I, it's, it's fascinating because people want to just hear this. What I say is it's complicated. So look, I don't know how you're going to respond to anger right now. Here's what I do know. Emotions have a beginning, middle and end. And but actions, they can't be undone. So whatever you're feeling right now, I feel you. I'm, I'll sit here with you. I don't understand it, but I'm with you. But I promise you, whatever you're feeling will change. But I promise you, whatever you do can't be undone. That's really uh, powerful there. I, I want to spend some time hovering on that because you, you brought up three really important points. One, you're teaching them. You're teaching them that emotions have a terminus. Two, you're validating that whatever they're feeling is real. And three, you're promising them something that I don't think we hear it often enough. Actions cannot be undone. And um, simply acknowledging that I think tends to bring people from their limbic into their logic and go, yeah, maybe I need to let go of this anger, which is super cool. Um, And and if I could birdwalk something else just a little bit here for a second, I, as just a random person consumer in America, I really appreciate that you didn't feed into the instant gratification, uh, culture narrative, um, that we're being fed these days, which is, uh, here, take this magic bean and your problems will go away that you didn't give the, the quick tips, the quick fix, the, the, you know, the, the easy path, because that would have done no one any good. It may have gotten you a place on some network to get your smiling face on there. And it may have filled their bill for that particular show or whatever, but ultimately you're just feeding the problem. You become part of the problem when you're contributing exactly. to that, right? Jake, that is like, that makes me excited. You and I get excited talking to each other. That makes me excited because you're right. And I tell people all the time, people see your actions, not your intentions. What am I going to do? Go to my daughter and say, I just said a bunch of stuff that I know to be not true. So I'm going to tell you something I did yesterday. And it's a small thing, but it's something I went in my daughter's room and I said, I want to tell you what I, what, I want you to understand this lesson. So yesterday I got um, a person gave me a, te- a pitch for a television show. People will call me and say, here's a pitch for a television show. Um, and the concept uh, hmm, I wonder if I can't, I probably can't give it away because it's probably a national show. <laughs> so the concept was unethical. And I said, uh, the moment they said it, I said, I appreciate that you called. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful to be in a spot where people uh, value something I have to say. I want to be honest with you. Not only would I not be involved with that, I would strongly advise you not to be involved with that. Um, I said, you know, years ago, um, People were in, in, in universities. People have to go through series of uh, other other peers reviewing what they're doing. It's called the IRB, International Review Board. 
Uh, actually, I might I might have gotten the first acronym wrong. I know it's the IRB, but the point is they they review institutional. Be, I think uh, well, institutional review board. Thank yeah. you. And he said, and they say, should I should we go through with this research? And people on television sometimes are doing things that are causing people long term permanent psychological damage, and they don't care because it's ratings. And I said, it's better for me that networks don't call me and say, can you justify this? And then just own it and say, you know what? I want to do something really unethical, but I think everybody's going to tune into it. Okay, <laughs> let me at least respect that you're at least saying that. Right. But please don't call me as a professional and ask to justify something that's unprofessional, unethical, and can cause harm because I'm insulted by it. But anyway, I go to my daughter and I say, so I just want you to see, like, it doesn't even make me blink. This is a major network. It's a major potential show. They want me to be the host. And not only do I say no, but I told them that they shouldn't go through with it. And so she kind of felt proud. She was like, oh, that's cool. But I, but I also want to, I always share that. Not only the aspect I share with it is it's important that we understand, not just teach that people see our actions, not our intentions, but that we live that. And I, of course, am the last person who will ever judge anyone on planet Earth because I've messed up from here to Mars. But I am aware and I want to move forward from today, from this moment forward, with making all those best decisions that I can. I want to point out something, too, that uh, you have an article that you wrote many years ago. It was published in a magazine that I um, I follow called Fostering Families Today. And if you're a clinician and you're working in our world and you work with uh, the foster system or the, the social services system, please check out Fostering Families Today. It's a very, very good publication. But you had an article back in like 2009 when I was working in-home uh, for the agency that you were clinical director at. And in, you you published, I don't know if it's the first time you published it, but it was the four C's of parenting. And, and for me, the, the biggest of the four C's are choices, consequences, consistency, and compassion. I, and there's a Noggin Notes podcast on this if you want to look it up and, and hear more. But for me, the most important C there is consistency because to me, it's the easiest to violate. Um, and what you've taught and that I continue to teach is that when you don't have consistency, you lose credibility, which might as well be the fifth C, I suppose. <laughs> um, right, right, right. But um, what you've done there is is you chose a principle for yourself, which is authenticity, you know, and uh, transparency, and you want to do that for your family, and then you were consistent with it. And I think that adds to your credibility, right? So we're not going to be consistent all the time, and, and we just need to have latitude and, and forgiveness for ourselves for that kind of thing when we when we make mistakes. But when you purposely choose to be consistent out of a principle that you're not going to deviate from, like authenticity, what it does is it sends a signal to other people. You you used Kaya, for example, as your, as your example, but um, anybody listening to the show now might be inspired to say, you know what? I do have some principles and I don't need to compromise them just for something that's fleeting like um, fame or money or whatever it is. So I appreciate you right. saying that. No, you're right. Like, I mean, I, I, you're so right. Like we do. I mean, how are we going to be authentic? How will we stand in front of our children and say, no, I would never. And, and you would, neither one of them, I know neither one of them say, I'm not saying that somebody out there says, oh, well, I've messed up. Uh, great. We've all messed up. I'm not talking about what you've done in the past. I'm talking about from this moment forward. Because everything from the past, we can't change that. We can't get one second of it back. But you can get from this moment forward, ch turning the corner, doing exactly what you want to do. Um, and, and it's empowering when we really truly recognize that. So those types of rage, I mean, those are, it's important to learn them, I think, because, you know, there's shame-based rage, too. I'm not sure if I talked about that at the beginning. Didn't. I can't remember. Um, yeah, go ahead. Shame based, shame based rage is another one, and that's that's that one where people live in shame, they act out of shame. But uh, those types of rage, by the way, for listeners, if you go check out Ron Potter Efron, he has a book called Rage. It's a great book, super um, easy to read. Um, it's it's a great. Uh, uh, just a general population kind of book. A trade book is a great book. Um, and then if you want to see a video on them, I do getting control of yourself, uh, anger management tools and techniques. But those, it's it's important to learn those types of range. Let's talk about the prison. What do you, we all have an idea of prison. I've never been to a prison. I've seen the outsides of prisons. I've seen the insides of jails, and they're not the same thing. Um, talk about your role in the Pennsylvania prison system, the, the Department of Corrections broadly, how that came about, because it's been many years now, and um, 
And what specifically are you doing? Because we're like, I think we all have images in our heads of what that maybe uh, consists of. But but t- take take us through that process. What's it look like? What's it feel like? What are you trying to achieve? What results are you getting? Yeah, that's that's great, and I really appreciate that question. So I um, I'm involved uh, with the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections in this way. I am currently training. So this yield theory that I created, 1998. I just wrote that book, Walking Through Anger, about. Um, Pennsylvania has adopted yield theory. So what we're doing is we're training all direct staff. We have 18,000 DOC employees, uh, 12,000 direct staff, and we're training the entire direct staff in yield theory on how to communicate more effectively. What that looks like is a series of trainings, follow-up trainings, you know, all the continuing education and all that kind of stuff. But what I, but what I do with the prison system and I do this all over the country, but I do this a lot in Pennsylvania. And that is I go into a prison for a period of time and I basically implement yield theory by going, well, first of all, I'm literally meeting people where they are, um, both officers and the inmates. And I will go in for, uh, if it's Pennsylvania prison, I tend to go in for six months at a time. And I go in and I'm working with staff constantly, not only doing trainings, but being there with them, watching what's happening. Because, my goodness, it is one thing to go interview. So if you're a consultant and you get to go interview people, you go, okay, great, I'm getting a sense of it. But if you go sit with them for a day or two, okay, oh, I have a better sense of this. But when you sit with people for four to six months, it's a whole different ballgame because guards are let down. Uh, people are more open. You're seeing like you can't put on an act for four to six months. So you can put an act for a couple of days, but you can't put on an act for a couple of months. Mm-hmm. And so you're really having a chance. So what I do is I get a chance to see what it's actually like. And then my role, because I'm working with all people on all shifts, I'm di- at, at prisons at different times. I- I'm able to kind of be incognito. Um, my personal approach, if you're listening and you don't know what I look like, I'm a a bald-headed guy with tattoos and a beard, and I dress in a t-shirt and jeans. So when I go in, people are always like, "Oh, this guy must work maintenance here or whatever." <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and he's I'm working on the HVAC. Without people knowing what I am, who I am, and what I'm doing, and then I get to get a really good insight as to what's happening. So when I go into these prisons, I'll do work with inmates. I'll do like groups. I'll do individuals, but individual sessions. And maybe this is a really good image for people to have. If you're, if you're driving, don't do this. But if you're not driving, here's what I'd love for you to do. If, you, if you're in a safe spot and you don't need to be operating something, I'd love for you to close your eyes and imagine this. But imagine you're in a very loud environment. You're standing in front of a door that's a prison cell door with a small uh, three-inch narrow window. And it's a three-inch thick steel door, and it's very loud. And the only communication you could have with the person on the inside is if you lean your your mouth a little closer to the one side of the door so it can kind of echo through there. And you definitely have to speak up when you speak. And this is is what a one-on-one interaction looks like. Um, So if you feel comfortable, go ahead and open your eyes if you have them closed. But but that's what a one-on-one interaction looks like. And in fact, if an inmate wants to tell you something that he or she doesn't want others to hear, they do what I say they call a step back. They step back off the door because that way other inmate cells who face their cell can't see that they're trying to tell you something that they only want you to hear. I don't know if I said that clearly. but That's fascinating. So, um, so the, the sound can be picked up by other people if they happen to be leaning against their own... Uh, walls or something right and then, and then the voices move through the pipes I, I, you're not really oh, wow. going to get privacy that other people aren't going to hear and when i say when you have to lean in i say you, it's not like you're sitting having like i'm sitting in a chair talking to someone else or i'm standing at a door and just talking through and I, like you have to kind of maneuver if you really want to be you know and this is the part that's like this conversation this dynamic that's a, an everyday interaction it's literally every time you interact and so that's something that if you haven't been on the inside, you don't recognize that plays a role. And it's it's the whole the whole when you're in there, when you're immersed in the setting, it's you, it's for me. That's how I've gained the experiences I've had. I, you know, Jake, I've done things where I've stayed afterward, where inmates thought I was gone and officers thought I was gone, and the stuff I learned was some of the best stuff I've ever learned. 
So people do put on an act while you're there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Especially at first, like especially at first and for the first couple months. Absolutely. So my role, because of my role, um, a lot of guys will think, um, that I'm, I'm there to get that. So I will make things happen, but when I make things happen, I'm not making things happen. Like, um, I'm just demanding it. Like for instance, I just did a, uh, supermax prison where I did this, uh, this whole movement with the inmates around inner peace, education, and legacy. And so we did this movement and I said, look, I, I we, and, and just to summer, cause this is the, we'll talk about this. Maybe you and I have talked about this one on either my show or yours in the past so we can direct people to that but for this purposes i just want to focus on this so with the inner peace that there was there was a reason behind that with education what that entailed was inmates getting more books in their um block time where they previously were not allowed to have books well this happened this occurred we we made this happen now they're getting books where they never were previously getting books Hmm. um and so when i talk about making things happen so i'm uh, making this Type 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 of stuff happen because look we, we need a change we need a change but you need to but you need to be in there and understand why it's happening and so I think what the officers kind of buy into with me is they know that I know what it's like for inmates to try to play me mm-hmm. and inmates have my respect because they know I'm also training the officers and I'm there to help all of them that's that's my goal is to help all of them. Quick question. Why is it so loud in prison? Because I think the metal, it's metal doors. Um, People are asleep at different times. Um, They don't, uh, there's a lot of kind of the junior high mentality. If you kept me up last night, I'm keeping you up tonight. And if you put a hundred people in a room together with that mentality, Oh, okay. And and 30 of them have that mentality. So it's not like there's a bunch of screaming and shouting and fighting. It's just noise, just banging and Well, sometimes it's noise. Sometimes it's fighting. Sometimes it's something called gang warring. And gang warring on the door is uh, when you tell all the worst possible things you can say to somebody else who's also on your unit. Hmm. Um, And then they are also fighting. Obviously, you're not going to physically fight because you're locked up. Right. It's called gang warrant on the door. Interesting. So it it sounds like it's actually a fairly safe place, but yet um, you're not interacting with these guys like face-to-face or these gals, I should say, uh, except in very controlled circumstances. Because I know you've done groups too, right? Yeah, and there were definitely groups out in – I probably wasn't clear that a lot of stuff I was probably just describing was the work I do in restricted housing units or solitary confinement. But, um, yes, I do groups with people who are in transitional housing units who are getting ready to get out of prison. There are no uh, – any kind of restraints or anything like that. We're just men in a group talking. Uh, and that looks like a typical classroom. Um, so, yeah, we, in any given maximum security prison, you're going to have a variation from people who are getting ready to get out to people who are struggling in the worst possible situation. I mean, groups in a, in a restricted housing unit look like individuals sitting in – in restricted cages. I mean, that's really what it looks like. Yeah. It's, 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 it's a lot of people get stunned when they first go into prison and realize that that's real. I remember my wife was watching a movie one time and there was one of those cages and she said, that's so silly. That just made this not real. She was like, that could never be real. And I was like, I actually run groups with guys sitting at those. <laughs> like that's absolutely real. Um, and so it's, it is shocking because you say, how are people treat you like this? But again, there are so many facets to this conversation. I mean, I, I fight for prison reform. I fight for these guys. I fight for the changes that they can make. I'm also not naive to and privy to and have observed and watched some of the pain that gets caused. Um, so I think that that's kind of been always been my advantage. I see all these different sides. I'm not coming in there, ooh, hey, listen, the inmates are all treated terribly, or coming in there saying, ooh, the officers are all treated terribly. You know, I kind of see that we all have things to work on, and that's my role is to help people in all the areas work on that stuff. You're building consensus is what it sounds like, and collaboration among people who share an environment. You know, they all got to get along, hopefully, you know, safely, and hopefully there's some some rehabilitation that goes on because you don't just – trip and stumble one day and accidentally end up in a long prison sentence. Usually there's a long behavior that leads up to that. And those behaviors have, uh, 
reasons behind them. And those reasons often are rooted in mental illness. I mean, this is a mental health podcast. And um, I'm wondering how much of your work in there is actually helping those guys to and gals, because I don't want to I know you've had some great stories about the the females in prison. They um, they have a history of being mistreated, abuse, neglect, uh, violence perpetrated against them that then, you know, gives rise to these behaviors that then land them in, in the corrections uh, system. And I'm wondering, just talking about outcomes and what you expect out of the work, are you seeing wholesome rehabilitation where people are actually like healed and walking in freedom? Um, or, no, what? no, but here's what I am saying. Here's what, here is what is different. So it, you're right. Historically, absolutely. Historically, people who struggled with, uh, mental health, uh, challenges were abused and neglected at this day and age in this state. And there's something called enantiotropia. We go from one extreme to another as a culture. So yes, there was that extreme where they were treated horribly. We've moved to the other extreme where people who can be identified struggling with a mental health issue are most certainly not abused uh, or mistreated in any way. Um, I believe we still need to implement a lot more proactive um, support services for them. And that's still a journey and in process. But now the flip is teaching them about that they are still accountable for actions. Correct. Um, and so that's been the flip that I think I have seen. And I think that officers throughout the country recognize that I know that I think really helps the work I do because, you know, a lot of officers are like, well, now this person can do whatever to us and they don't really get a consequence because of their diagnosis. And so yeah, and we don't is, want that. There's all of that stuff that, that kind of stuff happens in prisons for sure. Well, it happens in education too. Um, you know, kids get passes. I mean, not like a pass to leave campus or anything, but they, they get a pass. They don't necessarily have to face any sort of negative repercussion for the choices they make um, because uh, they are on a 504 or an IEP or something like that. And it's almost like the teachers are now handcuffed. So it's, it, I mean, we see this across environments where tre- people are treated differently and maybe they are given permission to do bad things and not be held accountable because of this this uh, mental health diagnosis. And what you're doing is you're bringing in the dialectic of, yeah, you can have this mental struggle and you're still accountable for the choices you make. So you're you're helping build awareness too. That, but that, that's that is definitely it because it's saying, listen, I will be your, I'm your biggest supporter. I'm standing here supporting you. I want you to have as much support as you can have. I am not changing the reality that people see your actions, not your intentions, and what you're doing if you're harming someone else is not acceptable. I don't want people harming you, but I don't want you harming someone else and justifying it. See, that's where it's never justified. It's kind of easy to really pinpoint that as a clinician because when someone can say, well, I'm struggling, so I have to hurt this. No, you're struggling, so you deserve all the support in the world. You're struggling, you do not deserve to hurt someone else. That's clear and when we make these clear boundaries a lot of times a lot of this stuff from parenting to the work in the prison system is around boundaries let's be clear there are choices there are consequences we definitely need to be consistent i really personally believe we should do it all with compassion that's why i talk about those four c's when you did the video you did a tedx talk some years ago when you first started this work and um one of the things that you show in the video is and i show this video regularly to lots of audiences uh most frequently to the, uh, the police academy that I that I help instruct here in Northern Nevada, um, but it, you showed a statistically significant reduction in assaultive behaviors in whatever your control population was at that time. Are we still seeing those reductions in assaultive behaviors throughout the system now? So I will say that I have not. We they still can go back because they have all the control. Um, stuff if they want to go back and take the numbers on that. I can tell you anecdotally, we are seeing constant improvement every time. I mean, like every time, every prison I've gone to, I'm excited to start a new prison here uh, next week where, you know, it's going to be a challenge, but it's also going to be something that's going to be rewarding. We're seeing this constantly. Um, I, I've been I've been in contact with some of the, the last prison I was in with both inmates officers and um some of the staff that's mental health staff psychologists um we're seeing some of those changes maybe at a better rate than ever i I will say uh, obviously if i if it was just in it for me for like um 
a name in the field or something, I'd probably be really attacking doing journals and all that stuff. I kind of just love the work I do. I'm less concerned about convincing anybody about this and more concerned about just making the impact. Um, that's so, really saying something, man, because that's pretty rare. Like a lot of us in our field particularly, but I think America, Western society in general really wants credit. You know, we want to brag about the stuff we've done and you're you're just in it to make Earth better. You know, that's that's pretty remarkable. Seeing this system change, I mean, to see, I heard from a superintendent the other day, uh, that's what uh, our listeners would know as a warden. In a lot of places, they're called a warden. Or, uh, but anyway, uh, uh, I was talking to... Uh, uh, the other day, a superintendent, and he said that the changes that went through, he said, it's unbelievable to realize we were where we were before you came. It's a new culture. And I, You're shifting culture. culture. And I said, I, I, I appreciate that. I said, I just was a tiny piece of that. It's just, I think a lot of it is me giving permission for everyone to be your best self. Like, it really is okay to be your, your best version of you. And, and if that means to the inmates, listen... You tell me you don't want to be looked at in a certain way. So how are you looking at you? I mean, yeah. just, just be your yeah, best man. self. Like I had a, a deputy one time and he said, you know, I had a kind of counseling background and I got into this um, part of it. And he said, I kind of lost that. He said, but watching you, he said, I realized I can still have that and still be consistent. And I said, a hundred percent. I'm consistent to a T. Like, I'm not making it up. When I had my group out west, you know that's about me. When I had my uh, center in South Lake Tahoe, mm -hmm. if guys came in at 5.01, my group started at 5. If that was your fourth miss, I was calling your parole officer. You're going back to prison. Yeah. And I, I had guys go back and literally get them. You know, one of the most moments where I realized this stuff works and it's real and it's genuine is a guy was had his handcuffs. Uh, I was getting in the back of the police car because he was late. And he was actually, he actually thanked me before he got in. So he said, I'm, I'm sorry I disappointed you, Doc. He said, thank you for, for at least uh, being true. And and I said, you know, I'm coming to visit you next week. But he's getting in the car and he's like, thank you. And I'm just like, man, you never think that you're going to say to somebody, you came in a minute late. <laughs> and that's the rule. The rule is the rule. I never took a personally ever. You know, and people listen to this maybe think that's harsh or whatever, but um, the backstory on a lot of these folks who uh, run afoul of the law with such frequency that they end up in situations like that is that they've never had boundaries held for them, and then therefore they can't hold them for themselves. And um, it's it's really a teaching moment to say, hey, just leave the house fifteen minutes early, you know, like like so, develop so, new patterns, you know. So let me tell you this: I had this event happen in my career. It was at the beginning of my career. Um, when you think about an athlete who maybe goes to a, a World Series or a Super Bowl in their first year, but then never gets back to it, and then they realize, wow, that really was a great moment. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to look back on this moment as a really powerful telling moment. I worked with a young man who in high school, when I first came to his door, he screamed F you and ran out the door. That was my initial meeting with him. I was like, oh, uh, okay. <laughs> so I got so close with this young man that I um, – I remember going to his graduation. Couldn't, couldn't have been more proud. Then he actually got into a situation where he got jealous of his uh, girlfriend. Um, he fired a rifle, fired a shotgun into her house at a party. It didn't hit anyone, got arrested, got 10-year prison sentence. So the first time I came to see him when he was arrested at county, and I'm sitting down with him, and this is one of his moments, I'm in the room with the guy, and... Uh, the visceral tears, the sobbing, like, I mean, first of all, this was somebody who I was so close with. So for me, for this young man, I watched him make such great changes in his life and then get to this mistake. Um, so watching this happen, but I'll never forget what he said to me. He said, you know, and he's sobbing through this. This is a tough young man, too. He said, you know, my mom never gave me consequences. Why didn't she ever give me consequences? Wow. And just crying with it. And I said, you know what? That, that imprinted me in such a profound way. And I said, when I say things, my wife and I say no to our daughter. We're not saying no because we don't like you. We're not saying no because we want you to be miserable. We're saying no because this is what's best for you right now. And I think that's powerful for parents, people who are running organizations, wherever you are, to set boundaries. Be able to say no and say it realizing you're doing what's best for your children. 
Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. I think we struggle with that sometimes at Zephyr when we have a, our attendance policy, right? And we're in Nevada. We're 51st in the country in behavioral health care. We've got a provider shortage coming out our ears and client demand that's through the roof. Every agency in town, in both Reno and Vegas, and in the rural areas who don't even have agencies in many towns, um, we have to have boundaries because we got to respect the people who are showing up consistently. And sometimes when you, when you say, Hey, I'm sorry, this is your third time. We got to, we got to refer you out to somebody whose you know, schedule might better fit your needs. Sometimes that message is very, very challenging to deliver because you see people, they really want it. They really, really want the help. And sometimes it, we have to be the one to, to set the boundary and, and that's not personal. It's not at all. No. Right. Matter of fact, not only is it not personal, but it's actually what might push them over the edge to recognize that they're in control of their choices. Totally. And and, and, and I'll tell you, to, to be honest, I, like you saying those boundaries is the best thing you can do. I mean, it's it's the seed. You know this. We 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 mm-hmm. oftentimes the only thing we ever do is plant a seed that someone else picks up down the road. Great, beautiful. Thank you for letting me be a part of your journey. Yeah, that's a really frustrating part of our jobs, too, is we don't get to see the fruits of our labor more often than not. It's really nice when people come back and you know tell us that they're successful, but we really don't frequently hear that kind of thing. Right, right. Well, I, I, I love talking to you. It's great to be able to do this. We need to do this more. Yeah, we do. Um, you have a heart out. I have a heart out. Um, one last thing, though, uh, well, two, I guess, because I want you to close with some stuff on where people can reach you, but... The last thing I want to ask is how do we replicate what you're doing other than cloning you or you deputizing a bunch of people into yield theory training? <laughs> what's what's the future hold for the other 49 states not named Pennsylvania? Well, so what we're what I want to do is create an international yield theory institute where uh, some of the best people in the world, the people that I know that are phenomenal that I've already interacted with. <clears throat> I'm just wondering if you will have time. Uh, so you are going to deputize people. I want people. to connect with the most. I think that we'll form an international yield theory institute where we're able to travel and go to different uh, institutions throughout the world and be able to teach this because I, I, I really truly believe this is going to be um, it's it's my calling for sure. Yeah. So that's my biggest next step. I, I lied. There's two things. One is your resources, which is um, drchristianconti.com, your website. And you have an emotional management podcast. I, I plug this to people because it's one minute at a time. They're really cool, like PSA style. Uh, and those are available on the website. But you mentioned the YouTube channel. What else? The book, obviously. Yeah, th- thank you. I really appreciate you mentioning that for the, for the emotional management. Then I do a radio show on Monday nights on uh, East Coast time. It is 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. So I guess West Coast, that's five to seven. Um, but I do it every Monday night. It's called Emotional Management. People can call in, talk about whatever's going on uh, with their with themselves, with their families, with their work, whatever they need help with. So I'm stoked about that radio show. And the last thing is one piece of influence, one book, one something, person that maybe the audience could maybe follow up on, pick up, see where you got your inspiration, something that's heavily influenced you. The person who has influenced me probably the most is Joseph Campbell, uh, C-A-M-P-B-E-L-L, Joseph Campbell. Um, He writes a lot in mythology. If you're only going to read one book by him, I definitely would advocate that you read A Hero with a Thousand Faces. It is phenomenal. It really gives us it's, – it certainly explains about mythology, but more than that, it explains a tremendous amount about psychology and understanding yourself. Um, so, yeah, that would be my that's, – that's a great info. I like that one. We'll do a different one next time. But this yeah. Time, that's cool. Well, it's 2.20 and we got to go. So on behalf of the Naga Notes team and the Zephyr Wellness family, thank you to Christian Conti for being a guest, and we wish you all great mental wellness. Bye.